0: Well, good morning, Lakeside. A few of you may have noticed there was a football game last week. Uh, some of you, I think, did tune into it. It got the best ratings in six years, and I was watching that game. It turned out well for the local team, right? I'm watching that game, and I noticed a lot of things during the game, and they didn't all have to do with how amazing Patrick Mahomes is with a bad ankle. Uh, one of the things I noticed is how incredible the detail is when a TV network puts its full attention on a football game. A normal NFL game has 15 to 20 cameras in the stadium. Last week, Fox had 94 cameras at the Super Bowl. And you see things like this. This isn't from that game, but we saw this. There's nowhere to hide with 94 cameras in the building. If somebody drags a toe on the sideline, you're gonna know it. If they bobble a catch, you're gonna know it. And it got me to thinking, Can you imagine doing your job with 94 cameras pointed at you all day long? Every single mistake you make captured from every angle, put out there for the whole world to review and analyze where you messed up. That would be pretty boring television for most of our jobs, but it would actually be horrifying as well, wouldn't it? And then think about if you had those 94 cameras pointed at your personal life, and those cameras were pointed at the biggest mistakes you've ever made. And that's basically what we have in John chapter 18 today. When we look at the apostle Peter, we are essentially getting game film of Peter's biggest fail in his entire lifetime. For Peter, that failure came in the middle of the night in a courtyard surrounded by strangers that from his perspective, he was in a situation that was spinning out of control. He made a bad choice that night. In fact, he made three bad choices and they were so bad, we're still talking about them. 2,000 years later. But as we're going to see, as we study John chapter 18, even though Peter failed, he failed a savior whose mercy is bigger than our mistakes, which is the theme of our message this morning. And that's the same savior who's at work in our lives. So as we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for recording this story. We pray that you will open our eyes, not to just see Peter, but to see ourselves. And we ask that you will guide us to you through this study of that night. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we get started, let's read John chapter 18, verses 12 through 16. So just to set the context, last week, Pastor Dave preached about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's where we pick up the story is in the Garden. Verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So to help you picture the process, we've got this map we started with last week that shows the journey of Jesus on the night of his trial and the day of his crucifixion. They started in the garden of Gethsemane, they walked across the valley through the walls of Jerusalem and they wound up at the high priest's house where he is put on trial. Jesus faced six trials that night, three religious, three civil. And we're looking at the first trial that he was facing. And to help you visualize kind of the layout of that action that we're gonna be looking at, the high priest's house would have been laid out probably something like this. You can see Peter is out in the courtyard. Jesus is on trial inside the house where he faces the high priest. This place is probably packed. There are a lot of people here to see what's going on with Jesus, even though it's the middle of the night. And one key to remember for later is the, there is an open wall between Peter and the inside of the house. It probably has columns, so he can look inside and he can see Jesus going through this trial in front of the religious leaders. Now, one thing we know about Peter is that he was what one sports commentator would call an irrational confidence guy. Irrational confidence guy. And you know irrational confidence guy in your life. In basketball, this is the guy that's 0 for 10, but he still wants the ball. Because he always thinks, I'm about to get hot. Just keep feeding me. I'm, I'm going to come through, no matter what my track record says. And that's Peter. We can see it in Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 29. This takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, an hour or so earlier for where we're at. Verse 26 of Mark 14, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. So Peter is calling his shot. He's saying, Jesus, I will never fail you. And he does get off to a pretty good start on that promise that night. So Peter has a tendency to run his mouth, but he often is backing it up. Because in the garden that night, when Jesus was threatened, he pulls a sword and he swings at a guy's head, cuts the guy's ear off, and Jesus puts it back. That was not the best plan, but it did show Peter had the guts to defend Jesus in front of armed soldiers. And now in chapter 18, he has snuck his way into the courtyard at the high priest's house. After almost every other disciple has run away from Jesus. That's a gutsy move by Peter to follow him into the courtyard. But now we're about to see where Peter's irrational confidence is going to run out. And to be fair to Peter, we really have to put ourselves in his position that night. It's about 1 a.m. in this courtyard. He's huddled around a fire on a cool night in Jerusalem. There's a crowd there. He's trying to look nonchalant. He wants to blend in. In our modern setting, he's the guy in the break room at the coffee machine trying not to get noticed, but he's sticking out like a sore thumb because he's dressed in rough clothing. He speaks with a Galilean accent that everyone in Jerusalem can notice. There's no hiding here. And Peter's agitation has to be showing. Why wouldn't it show? His religious leader is on trial for his life. Peter has to be full of nervous energy. And you probably know what's going to happen next. Chapter 18, verse 17 The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of that man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. The tone of the servant girl's question here in verse 17, it probably sounded like this. You're not one of them too, are you? Have you ever had that kind of question poised to you? More like an accusation? And have you ever felt that warmth creep into your cheeks where you realize I'm the only one in this room who believes what I believe? Is a lonely island, and that's where Peter was that night in the courtyard. And he got that question in a scenario where if he answers yes, and he says, I am with Jesus, he might die as a result. And then in just three words, Peter breaks that bold promise he had made to Jesus earlier that night. He says, I am not with him. And that's denial number one of the man that he's been following for three years, day and night. Then in verses 19 to 24, the action cuts inside the house. We can see what's going on with Jesus' trial. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anniston sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So the sham trial is in high gear inside the house. Nobody has any evidence against Jesus. Jesus is just saying, I've never hit a thing. Go ask anybody what I said. And then the scene cuts back to the courtyard, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing, warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. He said, I am not. It says they, there were multiple people throwing this accusation at him. Multiple people coming at Peter saying, you're not with him, are you? And he says it again, I am not with him. Denial number two. And then he gets the most specific question yet in John 18, 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man, this is not good if you're Peter, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. This is getting really personal. This guy says, I recognize you. I just saw you out in the garden with him. I know you were with him. Peter says, I was not with him. And after the third denial, Matthew and Mark both tell us, Peter actually cursed and swore afterwards, trying to add street cred. Like, no, I'm not with him. I'll even swear to prove it. Now, put yourself in Peter's position and imagine that chill that ran through his spine because after that third denial, two things happened. Number one, the rooster crowed. And if this were a movie, here's where we would see Peter. And up in the corner, we'd see this video flashback of Jesus talking. Because look what happened. Earlier that night, John chapter 13, Jesus predicted Peter was going to do this. John 13, 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Here's your rational confidence, guy. I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And now it just happened. Peter just heard the rooster crow, just like Jesus had predicted. So the rooster crows, the second thing that happened, as soon as Peter uttered that third denial, Luke records this part, Luke 22, verses 60 to 62. While he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Remember I said it was open between them? Jesus turns and he makes eye contact with Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. That detail that Luke includes of Jesus looking at Peter, it shows Jesus knows everything going on around him. He is inside, he's in the chaos of a trial for his life. He cannot possibly hear anything being said in the courtyard, yet Jesus knows everything happening. And he turns and he looks at Peter and Peter knows that he knows what he just did. Now, we need to step back and just really marvel at the fact that that story is in the Bible at all. As you probably know, we have four gospels that tell us the story of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't always include exactly the same information. They're all accurate, but they often give us different looks at the same events. Some include certain parables, certain miracles, others don't. But you do know there's one thing that appears in all four of them. The story of Peter's denial. It's in all four gospels. All four stories written by the followers of Jesus include the epic failure of one of Jesus' closest followers. A guy who turned out to be a key figure in the early Christian church. And here's an even more amazing detail behind that. The Gospel of Mark. Do you know who the Christian, early Christians believed gave Mark most of his information? Peter. Peter is the one who told Mark the story of his own denial, knowing Mark would write it down. So why would you include that story? Why put such an embarrassing story in the Bible? Well, I think there are three key lessons we can get from reading this story. Number one, even faithful people can fail. Now we know from scripture that if a person truly puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their savior, they cannot lose their salvation. Their eternal life is secure once they've believed. And that applies here too, because Peter's faith had not abandoned him, his courage had. How do we know? Why do I know Peter was a true believer in Jesus? Because Jesus said so. Earlier that night, back in John 13, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And here's what Peter says at that moment. John 13, verse nine. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you were clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. What Peter or Jesus is saying there is Peter, you are already cleansed from unrighteousness in God's sight because you believe in me. Therefore, I don't need to wash your entire body. He washed their feet symbolically to wash off the sin that sticks to us as we go through daily life. But the one he didn't say that about was Judas at the very end, because Judas would go on to betray him. So Jesus had read Peter's heart and said, Peter, I know you do believe in me. And there's another indication that shows Jesus was a true, or Peter was a true follower of Jesus. And that is how devastated Peter is when he fails to follow Jesus. We saw in Luke 22, 62, Peter went out and wept bitterly after his failure. That's no small thing for a fisherman. This is a tough guy. For him to go out and weep bitterly shows how it affected him. This was a guy who swung a sword a couple of hours earlier to protect Jesus. Now he's weeping bitterly. And that bitter regret over sin demonstrates His faith is real. He does believe in Jesus. And this reminds me of a conversation I have on a regular basis with people. It usually goes something like this. Somebody will call looking for some counsel and they'll say, I have really messed up my spiritual life. I've failed. I made a huge mistake. And then they say, do you think I'm really even a Christian? I mean, would a Christian do something like I just did? And I usually follow that with another question. Especially if they've only been a believer for maybe a few years. Maybe they're still new to this. And I'll say, think back to before you were a Christian. When you did something like that, did it bother you? And they'll say, no, I didn't even notice it back then. Like, there you go. That is the sign of a changed heart. That is the sign that you are being convicted by the Holy Spirit and you are a new creation in Christ. God is convicting you of your sin and calling you to go forward and serve him better. So when you feel the regret, that's a sign you have a changed heart. As long as we leave in this world, even true believers are gonna stumble. We're going to trip up. Faced with soldiers, look at Peter, he's facing soldiers, he pulls out a sword. Faced with a snarky servant girl, he collapses. That's a failure. Even as Christians, we are weak. But that doesn't mean we're not truly saved. And that does not mean Jesus gives up on us. And that's our next point, that Jesus' mercy is greater than our mistakes. The fact that this embarrassing story about Peter is in all four gospel accounts, that is a huge reason that we can trust the Bible is true. Over the years, there have been critics who have said the gospel writers made up a lot of this stuff. They were trying to paint Jesus as more than he was. They were trying to create this whole new religion for themselves. But you have to ask this. If you set out to create a new religion, would you write a story that's humiliating to one of that religion's leaders? I don't think so. You only include a story like this if two things, number one, you're telling the truth, and number two, wait for this, the story is not even about Peter, that's the point. One of the things I've been teaching the folks that are in my bridge class right now about how to study the Bible, is whatever passage you look at, always ask, what does this teach me about God? So you look at the story of Peter, and we say, what does this teach me about God? And it's obvious, we look at the story about Peter's failure, written, by Peter himself, through Mark, it's not here to glorify Peter, that's the point. It is here to glorify what Jesus did for Peter. The is about Jesus. And that applies to every story in the Bible, that applies to every story in your life, including mine. The story's about Jesus. As you look back through your life, it's not about what you've done, good or bad. It's not about your successes or your failures. For a Christian, Our resume, our life story is not about how great we are. That's how a non-Christian looks at their life. A Christian looks at their life story as a list of experiences showing how merciful Jesus has been to us every step of the way. Our resume should be a history of the times that Jesus forgave our faults. Our resume should be a history of times that Jesus worked through us to serve other people. I can picture Peter leaning over the writing desk where Mark is writing. And he's saying, Mark, make sure you show exactly how badly I messed up, because that'll show just how great Jesus' forgiveness is. He wanted the story told. Our minds should not be blown by the fact that an early church leader fell flat on his face. Our minds should be blown at the mercy and the forgiveness that Jesus showed Peter in his darkest hour. We saw Jesus had predicted Peter's denials in John 13. But do you know what else he predicted? We can look at Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, this is Jesus talking. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. That means Satan wants to try you, Peter, see what you're made of. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And look at this, when you have turned again, not if, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus predicted that Peter would be restored. And friends, that's the story of the entire Bible written in one man's life. This is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Humans fail. We choose sin that separates us from God, but God never leaves us without a path back to himself. The entire book of the Bible, it's the story of God preparing a way for a savior who can come and die in the place of sinful people, a savior who can pay the debt of our sin and restore us to fellowship with God. All we have to do is accept that gift by trusting in him. And here we see it playing out in the life of one scared fisherman turned disciple who is feeling all alone on a very frightening night in Jerusalem. Jesus never leaves us without a path back to God because Jesus is the path back to God. He never gave up on Peter. In fact, it was wildly opposite of that. In this series, we will get to John chapter 21, but it's not until late April, so I'm going to give you a sneak peek because I love John chapter 21. I would preach it all this morning if we had the time, but I just want to take one element at it, or one, look at one element. When we get to John chapter 21, Peter has not seen Jesus since the crucifixion. He's heard that he rose from the dead, but he hasn't come into contact with him. Peter doesn't know what to do. He goes back to fishing. That's all he knows. So he's out on the fishing boat. And one day the disciples are out there. They look up and they see someone on the shore. And someone realizes that is Jesus standing on the shore. Peter jumps out of the boat, starts swimming, wading, rushing through the water. He gets up to the beach to be reunited with his Savior. And remember the last time he saw Jesus, he had just denied him. And then look at the conversation Jesus has with Peter in John chapter 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you not, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It says Peter was grieved that Jesus, you have to ask me three times that I love you? Jesus did know, but he wanted Peter to say it. How many times did he want Peter to say it? Three times. Why do you think that is? He's like, Peter, you denied me three times. Now tell me three times you love me. Tell me you love me three times. This is Jesus restoring Peter. This is Jesus saying, I know what you did, but you're back, I forgive you. He's restoring him. Jesus predicted Peter's failure, but he also predicted his return. Jesus knew his messed up past but that didn't stop Jesus from loving Peter. That didn't stop him from restoring him and that didn't stop him from using Peter the rest of his life for his glory. There are some old Christian legends that say, Peter never heard a rooster crow for the rest of his life without breaking down in tears because of his regret when he heard that rooster. I don't think that makes any sense. What makes more sense, there's another Christian tradition that In the early church, the rooster became a symbol of Christianity. You would see it everywhere, including things like headstones, like this one. That is a rooster over an open grave. Why would the rooster become that symbol? Because the rooster didn't symbolize Peter's lowest point. It symbolized Jesus' greatest forgiveness. And Christians would look at the rooster and say, every time I hear a rooster crow, I remember Jesus saved me. That's why it became a symbol that they clung to. That was the message. Christians should not look back at our failures with a heart full of regret. We should look at our failures at the times when Jesus' forgiveness was at its peak in our life. Our failures should not be moments of regret. They should be monuments to our restoration. If you wanna know the secret sauce of effective Christians all through history, it is just this, they have seen the depth of their own sinful soul. And that makes them rejoice in the mercy of God and sending Jesus to save them, to pay off their debt of sin, to use them in service. Peter learned it firsthand right here. Paul learned that firsthand. And he wrote about it in the book of First Timothy. He wrote this in First Timothy 1, 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Peter said, or Paul was saying, you want to rank all the sinners? I'm at the top of the list. I'm as bad as it gets. But, he says, I receive mercy for this reason. Paul's saying, why would he save me? For this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, Jesus didn't use me greatly because I was perfect. He used me because I was so messed up that nobody could demonstrate his patience better than a guy like me. That is the message of being a Christian. That goes for all of us. Jesus predicted Peter's failure and he went ahead and died for him anyway. The the Jewish leaders, they were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They were conspiring to kill him and Jesus went ahead and died for him anyway. The Roman soldiers took spikes and they drove them through the tendons in Jesus' arms and nailed him to a cross. And Jesus died for them anyway. None of those people recognized their sin. None of those people went to Jesus and said, would you go die for me? I need a savior. That's why Romans 5, 8, 9, one of the most beautiful passages in scripture, Paul wrote, God shows love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You don't have to clean up your life to get saved. You don't have to clean up your life to go to Christ and say, I want you to be my savior. Forgive me of my sins. You don't have to get cleaned up because Jesus knows your life is a mess. That's why he died for you in the first place. And I want all of you to know that every one of us who gets up on this stage to open the word, every one of us who gets up here to lead worship, to read scripture, everyone who serves in any way in this church, we are all messed up sinners that God saved. We all have records and he has saved us despite our flaws. He can do the same for every single one of you. That brings us to our last point. There is a future for people who fail. We all have to anticipate, we will face tests like the one Peter faced. There's no denying, our culture is turning against Christianity, and not just in a way where people say, hey, Christianity, if that's good for you, it's not for me, but knock yourself out. No, Pastor Dave talked about this a couple weeks ago, that in our culture, increasingly, they're not just gonna leave Christians alone to do their thing. In our culture, they believe if you don't affirm every choice somebody makes, you must be the enemy. And they are going to challenge us as Christians. That's gonna be at school. That's gonna be in your kids' sports leagues. That's gonna be at work. That might be in a tax code where we actually pay a financial price for the first time in our lives for being a Christian. Peter had to make his decision around a charcoal fire out in a courtyard. We will make our decisions over coffee machines and break rooms. We will make our choice around the minivan and the sports complex parking lot. And our moment of truth may come when someone asks a blunt question like Peter got and someone says, oh my word, you're not one of them, are you? Or it might be more subtle than that. We have to be on the lookout for what one writer calls micro-denials. Micro-denials happen inside of our heart even if they never come out of our mouth. These are whenever we place our faith in something besides Jesus. When we face financial problems, our hearts, they will lead us into a micro-denial as we lose faith in Jesus and reveal that we really trust in how much money's in the bank. When we face health problems, we might slip into micro-denial when we lose faith in Jesus' promise of eternal life and we think only about what's in this world. When we're dealing with a marriage problem, it's a micro-denial when we think maybe I should just bail rather than trust in God's sovereignty and trust that he uses hard times to make us better people. And maybe, as I gave you some of those examples, maybe you heard a little rooster crow inside your heart. I definitely heard the rooster crow this week as I thought through this. I was convicted that I continue to rehearse failures in my past. And I think if I could just go back and do it over again, I'd be a better person. And I realize I'm not practicing what I just told all of you to do. I'm not looking at my past and saying, praise God, he used me despite my messed up past. That is a micro denial of Christ. And sometimes when we get that kind of a wake up call, it can cause us to go and weep bitterly because our faith slipped. If not our faith, our courage at least. But let's say you and I do, we buckle. Whether that is verbally or just in our heart. When we buckle under some of the trials that we face, remember this. Peter's greatest height of service to Jesus came after his biggest failure. It's after his failure that Peter carries the gospel to all the Gentiles, which is people like you and me. It's after his failure that Peter becomes a leader in the new church. It's after his failure that Peter writes part of the Bible. The scene we just walked through with Peter, that took place in the courtyard of the high priest named Caiaphas. That was not the last time Peter and Caiaphas came head to head. And if you like a good redemption story that comes full circle, check this one out. Just a few months later, Peter and Caiaphas meet again. It's in Acts chapter 4. By this point, Jesus has returned from the dead. He has risen and gone to heaven. He is leaving the disciples with an order to go and share the good news of faith in Jesus Christ. Everywhere you go. And they're doing that. Peter and John in Acts 4, they go to the Jewish temple and they begin proclaiming, you can only have eternal life if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You might guess that's not very popular with the Jewish leaders. They had just conspired to squelch that message by killing Jesus. And now these guys pop up in the temple preaching about Jesus. So they put Peter and John on trial, a religious trial like the one Jesus faced. And look at what Acts 4.13 says about what the religious, religious leaders noticed. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized what they had been with, Jesus. Nobody had to ask Peter this time. You're not one of them, are you? It came out of him. It was flowing out of him. They said, that guy's been with Jesus. Look at the way he's acting. Peter was a changed man. He was fearless now in front of the people who terrified him just a few months earlier. And in verse 18, the priests tell him to knock it off and Peter doubles down. Look what they say. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter messed up big time back in the courtyard, but look where he is now. He is boldly proclaiming the message of Jesus to the people he used to be afraid of. With God, there is always a future for failures like you and me. And I want to tell you, I've seen some of this in action just this week here at Lakeside. I was talking to a young friend of mine who's getting pushed back at school for talking about his faith. He's in the courtyard right now. People saying, you're not one of them, are you? And then I talked to somebody from Lakeside who invited a friend a year ago, saved him seats at a service and said, hey, if you want to join us at church, come on over. And this woman came to church, got saved in the process. And last week I heard her tell the friend who invited her, those seats you saved me changed the course of my life. Hallelujah. All because somebody said, I want to tell what I've seen and I've heard. They shared it. So Christians, you're going to mess up in your life as a Christ follower. But Peter shows us a person who messes up is the kind of person God will use. Weep when you fail him. Ask for forgiveness. Then look for where he's pointing you that you can go and serve him better and tell other people about the incredible forgiveness that you have found in Christ Jesus. And for those who aren't Christ followers yet, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, we're glad you're here. We're glad we get to tell you about what we've seen and heard. And know this, Jesus knows you've messed up and he died to pay for your sins anyway. Cast yourself on his bottomless mercy that is greater than your mistakes and it will change the course of your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you recorded this story of Peter's failure. He's just a human being like us that you have saved and that you have transformed into someone he was not before. We thank you for the boldness he shows after you restored him to fellowship Lord, we pray for those who are here today who are beating themselves up about their past, those who are dwelling in the past and saying, I can't be used by God because I've made mistakes. Lord, let this be a clear lesson to say you only use people who have made mistakes. That's all there are. And we pray that the Christians in the room, that you will help us to look back, not with regret, but to see the restoration you've brought time and time again in our lives. And let that be a testimony as we share with other people that we've been forgiven and we've been used despite our flaws. we pray that if there's someone here today who has not put their faith in Christ yet, help them understand you don't have to get cleaned up to come to Jesus. He died for us while we were sinners. He understands that about us and he will help us return to fellowship with God. He will make us righteousness through him. I pray that you will speak to people's hearts. Bless the rest of our time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.